It's an honor to be asked to be a part of this study this year. Uh, I didn't learn about it until a couple of years ago, uh, but I'm certainly thankful for the opportunity to get a chance to visit with you and talk a little bit about this topic. I didn't know at the time it was assigned to me that it was related uh, to a topic that I've done some research in, that is critical race theory. And I'm gonna try to tie those two together a little bit as I go through the study tonight. You know, as I went through and I began to work on this, I realized what Solomon said in the long ago, in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, saying that there's no new thing under the sun. And certainly uh, there is no new thing under the sun when it comes to this topic. It kind of reveals itself in different ways by different names, and we're going to look at that a little bit tonight. My approach to this uh, presentation is going to be uh, in the order of the questions that were given to me. I'm just going to go through the questions um, as they were given to me. Oops. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to go through the questions. We're going to trace the history a little bit of liberation theology. We're going to look at what groups still hold it today and look at some of the ways in which it has manifested itself in some of these organizations. We're also going to look at some of the major tenets of it. There's just about three of them. There may be a little bit, uh, maybe one or two more, but the major ones we're going to cover are what are the major beliefs about it. Uh, we're going to look at some Bible passages, of course, to kind of show how they support it and, and how they actually go about really promoting this doctrine. Uh, it's kind of interesting. When we, uh, I guess when we get to the passages, we can talk a little bit more about that. Now, and, and then we're going to uh, look at the value of it. Uh, Austin wanted me to kind of look at it and say, okay, now, does it have any value today? Uh, why are we studying it? Is it something that we need to be aware of? Is it something that we need to understand? I do think it's something that we need to understand because it has manifested itself in various ways. Now, one caveat before I get started, uh, I'm going to use the word church, but I'm going to preface it uh, with the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, just to be clear about how I'm going to do that, if I make a statement about the true church, I'll say that, that I'm talking about the true church. I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. You know, you may be wondering, just, just what is liberation theology? Well, in a nutshell, liberation theology is a way of looking at the Bible and using the poor, the marginalized, and those individuals who are poverty-stricken uh, as the only lens that you look at when you're studying the Bible. Uh, it should be the primary lens. Salvation is not really uh, an, a major tenet of liberation theology, but Understanding the poor and their plight is. Now, uh, it's a way of kind of distinguishing between Jesus as the liberator or Jesus as, as liberator or Jesus as our redeemer. Now, as we go through this, we're going to try to make some, some comments about that, and hopefully we can kind of make it clearer. Now, there are scriptures, we're, we're aware of many scriptures that actually show that uh, Jesus is our Redeemer and also our Liberator. Just look at a couple before we get into that section. In Job chapter 19 and verse 25, 19 and verse 25, the Bible says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. 
Ezekiel 22, verse 29. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. Jesus referred to the poor many times in his teachings, those that are destitute spiritually and also those that are destitute physically. In Matthew 5 and verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mark 10, verse 21 says, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. We'll look at more scriptures when we get to that section, but these are just some to show you that you, there are various scriptures that attack this poor idea from various angles. Now, there's no question that the poor have special places in scripture. Although the movement started in Latin America in the mid 20th century, it has expanded and provides the foundation for many of the social justice movements that are active today. The idea of the poor being marginalized and exploited is not a new idea. It has, been, has an old theme among the ancient philosophers and has a long history in antiquity. Aristotle actually, uh, in the fourth century, made a statement they want to look at about the poor. And they draw kind of on his, uh, this particular statement. He reads, it is therefore the greatest happiness which the citizens can enjoy to possess a moderate and convenient fortune. For when some possess too much and others nothing at all, this arises from a headstrong democracy or an oligarchy. But very seldom when the members of the community are, near, are nearly on an equality with each other. What Aristotle was saying says, according to him, uh, an out of control democracy or an oligarchy or people who have all the resources concentrated in maybe a few people, that doesn't actually result in a good situation for the poor. So this is kind of the foundation of some of the things that they came up with using Aristotle's thoughts. Now, we begin to trace the history a little bit of this. New Russian theology has been making headlines for the last 50 years. It has been both globally influential and bitterly controversial. It has been investigated by the CIA on suspicion of promoting social unrest and cited by the former, a former pope who accused it of getting too close to Marxist thought. Critics have dismissed it as naive, but also have called it a threat to our capitalistic system. Now, you see these images here? These are, these are basically the images that they circulated uh, back in the 50s and 60s to actually show uh, what liberation theology stood for. Now, these phrases here, speaking truth to power, uh, uh, prophetic Christianity, those were kind of common in that particular time. But recently, they've come up with this woke theology. Woke theology is kind of uh, surfacing in many, many areas, a uh, wokeness, rather, and it has shown its face in this theology. Now, it developed, uh, now, what I want to do is, if I can get used to this video here. Uh, I want to look at, before we get started, I want to look at these differences between these concepts, Marxism, socialism, and communism. Now, uh, Marxism, as you know, uh, Karl Marx actually, he is credited with being the founder of communism. And I just kind of highlighted some of these words to show you that even though 
they're used in really different uh, situations. They're really what you might call kissing cousins, you know, because they all really relate to the same thing. Now, government ownership, uh, they really uh, relate on three levels. All three of these ideologies have shared similar aspects and overlap. Communism and Marxism are sometimes used interchangeably. Since Marx is given credit for its origin when he wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848, but each has a slightly different focus. And I put the focus on the bottom there that they focus on. Marxism really focuses on a classless society. There's no, no distinction between classes at all. Socialism, Socialism focuses on the people owning all the resources. And communism, of course, the government owns the resources. So private property is where they kind of differ a little bit. But as you can see, they're very similar. Very similar. They're all political theories. They all actually deal with, uh, they all are theories. They're not actually real, so to speak. But uh, that's kind of the difference between the three. You'll hear me say a lot about Marxism. I just wanted to make a, a little comparison between the two, three. At the time, many countries in Latin America were some of the poorest countries in the world. The future of many of those countries in what was then considered the third world was bleak. According to conservative estimates, the world, uh, Latin America at that time had one billion persons were living in absolute poverty with no regular water supply, no access to medical care, and a per capita income of about $150 a year. These conditions existed throughout Latin America in countries such as Brazil, Peru, Bolivia, San Salvador, etc. It is not difficult to imagine the difficulty and confusion in addressing the poverty in Latin America at that particular time. Put yourself in the place of an idealistic priest or nun coming from Europe having just studied and gained a theology degree for three or four or five years. And then, once they come back into this situation, they are sent to work among the poor in these vast, poverty-stricken, overcrowded cities on unpaved streets, in shacks with no plumbing, among children who barely had clothes and poorly fed, and also with no support from the Catholic Church. To them, this was a stark reality check, you might say. They did not understand why the church was not taking a more active role in helping and supporting the poor. Now, these, these particular guys right here, you probably don't recognize any of these names. I just put them up here for a second. Uh, they, these were, even though there were lots of uh, bishops and nuns and lay people, that were actually working in this movement. These are some of the guys who actually wrote a lot of the writings that they uh, used to actually formulate their philosophy. Now, although these countries, there were many Catholic priests and lay people who spearheaded the movement, these are the guys who really actually brought it to the fore. In fact, this guy, uh, Gustavo Guterres, he is looked upon as being the, well, he's given credit for actually starting the movement. Now, he wrote the text that they use even today, uh, and it's a text entitled A Theology of Liberation, History, Politics, and Salvation. This is considered to be the foundational text for the movement. Now, Guterres was an avowed Marxist, as can be seen from this quote. He says that Marxism presents the best analysis of the oppression-liberation conflict in terms of class struggle. In fact, most of these priests, most of these guys were Marxists, and they really believed in Marxism. 
Now, he, 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 being an about Marxist, the oppressed and the oppressor is the main themes in Marxism. You have to identify the oppressor, and if you have an oppressor, you're going to have a group that's oppressed. And that is the class system of Marxism. And it overrides into all of these uh, recent uh, theories and recent groups that have come up in the last 20 to 30 years. Now, to show you how widespread this philosophy really is, it has advanced around the world. This book that I mentioned a moment ago, it has been translated into 14 languages, and most recently into Arabic. Can you imagine? This book on, on liberation theology has been translated into Arabic. It should be noted that Latin American liberation theology and black liberation theology emerged concurrently yet independently with one common denominator, oppression and suffering. The poor in Latin America had found an ally with the poor and discriminated blacks in America. It took a few years, but by the mid-1970s, this ideology had spread to America during the rebellious times of the 60s, when black activists saw an opportunity to use this new ideology to focus on their own oppression and their own discrimination. They used it. Uh, Fluidly, several people contribute to the beginnings of the black liberation movement in America. Now, but the guy that really, uh, that really is looked at as the foundation of the black liberation movement in America is a guy by the name of Dr. James H. Cohn. He was a professor of systematic theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and he's from Fordyce, Arkansas. Dr. Cohn is the author of several books and is best known for his advocacy of black power and black liberation theology. In his 1970 book, A Black Theology of Liberation, it's the foundational text for the movement. In his books, Dr. Cohn used the Exodus narrative. And he, he used that narrative, the Israelites being released from slavery and being equivalent as being equivalent to Jesus actually liberating the blacks and liberating poor people from all kinds of oppression. So he used that Exodus narrative throughout many of his books as, as a foundation for, for that particular movement. Now, so although, although uh, it started in um, South America, uh, it has made its way into American culture and given birth to many forms of liberation theology. Now, what I want to do here, I know this may look a little confusing, but I'm just trying to, trying to give you a feel for, for how this stuff developed from Karl Marx. See, Marx started it with his, uh, that, uh, that Communist Manifesto that he wrote in 1848, and also Das Capital, a large volume of, of, of social theory. He started that way back in the mid Oops. Okay. He started that way back when he was a young man in his 20s. Now, what happened was he, he provided the foundation for all of these theories that are now being circulated in academic circles. Now, he, now social theory is what we're actually talking about tonight. His social theory that is taught throughout many universities around the world is taught, that's the basis of liberation theology. Now, social theory has more iterations than liberation theology, but that's what 
that's what he actually started that we're kind of piggybacking on uh, tonight. Now, these others, this guy is important because what happened was he was a disciple of Marx, and he was head of what's called the Frankfurt School over in Germany. And it, this was a very, very uh, uh, influential social research project. And this guy headed it up, and he came up with this idea of critical analysis. Now, the reason that's important, because today, uh, school systems, uh, businesses, government, they are incorporating critical race theory into their organizations. And it's being done at such a rapid speed, it's unbelievable. In fact, three years ago, it wasn't even heard of. But now it's being incorporated. In fact, some of you may have actually run into some of this critical race theory if you go to school. In fact, it starts, uh, many of these school systems, it's some in the larger cities, have started uh, indoctrinating critical race theory to children as young as six years old. But that's the importance of this particular guy. So critical race theory, as you can see, I draw an arrow from critical race theory to liberation theology and back and forth because both of them deal with this oppressor oppressed dynamic. That's the foundation for both of critical race theory and uh, liberation theology. Now, the importance of Cone is that many of these groups that were formed used the freedom movement of blacks for the basis of their cause, the oppressed oppressor dynamic. Okay, now, take Mark's social theory that we just talked about a moment ago. The social theory that he created of course, he's from Germany, 1840s, 18. That's what he wrote over those 40 years. Liberation theology came from that. It surfaced in South America in the 50s and 60s. Black liberation theology came from that to America in the 60s and 70s. We had all this black power, uprisings, riots, this sort of thing. That's where that came from. It was driven by that movement. Now, notice all of these other movements that have come from liberation theology, Black liberation theology. And the reason, the reason all these things kind of came about was because they rode the black liberation wagon, you might say, because they saw an opening that America was opening up to discrimination. And so feminist theology, Latino womanist, all of these came, as you can see, after the 70s. Notice, 2080s. These are more recent. And these, are, and these some of these are actually, you can get, bachelor's degrees in any of these and master and doctorate degrees in most of them now to, to show you how popular it is in certain universities especially those that specialize in the social sciences now as you can see from the sampling on the slide these groups came after the foundation throughout the 19th century the catholic church had basically aligned itself with the upper classes of society and did little to address the needs and grievances of the poor Many countries in South America had been converted to Catholicism, but the poverty in these countries during that time was severe and widespread. Many of those countries experienced military takeovers that were billed as independence movements, which promised liberation, and a lot of those spread across South America. And there was hope given to poor people that these uprisings would actually uh, uh, uproot the ruling class and give them a little bit more say in their situation. Communist revolutions around the globe at the time were sparking hope for all of these impoverished people. These revolts only benefited the rich because these uprisings still maintained an alliance with the Catholic Church. 
that tended to align itself with the rich. Since religion had played a major role in conquering Latin America, again, it was easy for the church to remain aligned with the rich rather than being a reflection of the poor. The Catholic Church acted as a kind of privileged model of success, and people looked at them as success, power, and power. These groups, the clergy and the oppressed classes, began to reinterpret the role of the Bible. They began to reinterpret the, the role of the Catholic Church and how they actually interpreted the Bible. And the Bible in everyday society began to reinforce, they began to reinforce refocus religion toward the pursuit of social justice. And this is how the Catholic Church really got focused on social justice from this movement. The, the founders of the liberation theology movement saw theology not as just something that you can reflect on, something that you think about, something that you critique. They flipped it and said, look, this theology is based on something that you have to do. It's not based on thinking and reflecting as it has in the past. And this caused a lot of problems in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Now, they said, I quote, if something you do in order to help oppressed people free themselves from the tyranny of a misguided Catholic Church. And what they conceived as a misguided interpretation of the Bible when it came to addressing the needs of the poor. These people watched the destitution not going their way and in all these so-called Christianized lands and wondered, shouldn't their faith be doing something to help poor people? They wanted their faith to be a practical faith, not just something that you think about, but they said, they thought that, look, why, won't the Christian faith, why wasn't the Christian faith doing more to help poor people? It was so, uh, there was so much abject, abject poverty until they wondered about this out loud and really protested against the Catholic Church because they felt like they were doing nothing but catering to the rich. This new theology was not to be one, not to be one focused on saving souls. They, they specifically said that, well, you know, salvation is still on the list, but it's not a priority. Saving the poor, changing their situation, uh, robbing the rich and giving to the poor, the Robin Hood situation. They wanted that. They wanted to switch roles and make the rich give up their resources to the poor so the poor could become more equal. Now, they used, uh, they wanted a, a just and fair society. That was a phrase they used, a just and fair society to bring about social and political change. This was a very political Thing, and they wanted the Catholic Church to become involved openly in politics. Now, they said one of the proof texts they used to uh, support their cause is Luke 9 and verse 58. They said, look, Jesus himself was poor, so we have an ally in Jesus. Luke 9, 58 says, you, you know the passage, foxes have holes and birds of the air have uh, nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. This was one of those passages that they used. And they said that any legitimate church will give preference to the poor. In other words, they felt that defending the rights of the poor is seen as the, uh, the central aspect of the gospel. Now, that has kind of set in because if you, if you change the focus of, of the gospel from salvation and you say, okay, we should be focusing on the poor, salvation is something that is on the list, but it's not priority, you change the whole message of the Bible. Now, what groups, what groups still hold it 
uh, today. Well, while the core teachings of liberation theology have found their way into many denominations that we don't have a lot of time to really go through all of it, but uh, they disguise it as social justice. When you hear the term social justice in anything, you may think you understand what they're talking about, but their idea of social justice and maybe your idea of social justice is two very different things. While the core teachings of liberation theology have found their way into many denominations, disguised as social justice initiatives, the Catholic Church is by and large the most influential on the global scale in its promotion of liberation theology. Now, uh, however, at first, however, at first, at first, as the followers of this theology grew, it grew, it kept growing very rapidly, the Vatican felt interestingly threatened by the movement's uh, connections to radical movements like Marxism. The Catholic Church was upset. They felt that uh, this particular movement was threatening the authority of the church because many of the grassroots people were actually getting behind it because they felt that this was their salvation. John Paul II, during his 27-year reign as Pope, was able to suppress the movement by convincing people that it represented a loss of faith. He said, this conception of Christ as a political figure, a revolutionary, or a subversive of Nazareth does not tally with the church's creed. Pope Benedict XVI blasted the new movement as a fundamental threat to the Catholic Church and prohibited some of its leading proponents from speaking publicly. He even censured some outspoken priests on the grounds that they abandoned the church's spiritual role and they had actually uh, pursued what he calls social activism against the church. Pope Francis, the, pope, uh, the present pope, he was the first Latin American pope who was from Central America and knew of the poverty firsthand. But surprisingly, because of politics, he, he took a stand just the opposite of his predecessors. In many of his public speeches and letters, he has regularly alluded to the teachings uh, of liberation theology and the plight of the poor in support of it, kind of tacitly supporting it. In addition to the Catholics having a long history struggling with the movement, major Protestant denominations lent moral credibility to the, uh, the Marxist groups in Latin America during the 1960s. And one particular group that lent support to it openly is the United Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church missionaries worked in Nicaragua, not planning churches or doing any sort of evangelism, but working with the Sandinistas, whose goals was to overthrow the dictatorship of the Somoza family. They worked openly with the, uh, to overthrow the Somoza family, who they actually thought were dictators, but which they were. That denomination's emphasis today on social programs likely were influenced by social activism during that period of time. Liberation theology has moved beyond the poor peasants in South and Central America. Haiti and South Africa are also home to forms of liberation theology. In the United States, black liberation theology, as we mentioned, is preached in some Protestant churches in larger cities where social justice movements are common. Now, 
the, some of the more visible uh, uh, events were, uh, say, you might remember the Jeremiah Wright's church, church, uh, the Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, to which former President Barack Obama was once a member. He openly teaches uh, liberation theology. Other groups have identified themselves as oppressed and follow a similar ideology, as we noted, call it, citing Dr. James Cone and his promotion of black liberation theology. But the, this theology has spread to other parts of the world in recent years, such as to Islam. Surprisingly, Islam is actually beginning to embrace uh, tenets of this particular theology. Uh, also, Hindu, Jewish, and Palestinian strands. Its connection to critical race theory is allowing it to be taught in schools beginning in kindergarten, as I mentioned earlier, as a part of a nationwide focus on social justice. This country, the government, businesses, schools, they're all involved in this social justice movement. Now, universities, governments, businesses, they all are in an effort to right the wrongs that have been thrust on marginalized groups. Those groups that I mentioned in that uh, previous slide, all those groups are aggrieved groups who feel like they have been marginalized, they have been uh, discriminated against, and if you have a discrimination uh, issue, then you, you, that falls right in line with the teachings of uh, liberation theology. Largely, and the reason it's so easy for these uh, groups to fall in behind this is because of this. Let me go one more ahead. Because of this. Now, just think about it. In every situation, every social, economic, even spiritual situation, there's going to be an oppressor and there's going to be somebody that's oppressed. That's why it's so easy for people to fall into these movements, no matter what group you're talking about. Uh, look, Egypt, Israel, that re reflects that. Rich, poor, proud, humble, uh, sin, humanity. You know, it, it's just people look at sin, oh, sin is the oppressor. Yeah, we know it is spiritually, but they... Some of these groups like LGBTQ, feminists, they think that, or they teach that, well, you know, the Bible uh, is actually the enemy. The Bible, God, is the oppressor because we can't be, we can't be who we are. God says that we can't be uh, gay or we can't be this and that. So they classify God as the oppressor and they as the oppressed. Also, so it's kind of easy to kind of fall into that particular belief because it's so easy to identify a good guy and a bad guy. Now, most of these movements all owe their allegiance to Karl Marx because he supplied them with an appealing argument that not only made sense, but it fits as well with just about any social movement like I just mentioned, largely because every movement has a good guy and a bad guy. Now, this previous slide, I want to show the connection between critical race theory and put it alongside liberation theology so you can kind of see how it lines up. Well, of course, to them, the Catholic Church was the oppressor. Uh, you go over here, social justice, critical race theory, and all these other theories they say, well, the dominant race, the dominant group, 
the dominant, the, the rich, they, they identify an oppressor and it lines right up with Marxist social analysis theory. Oh, same thing with the oppressed. Okay, the poor in Latin America, that's what they were dealing with. Well, here in the U.S., under the social justice a banner, all of these groups that we've mentioned a, few, a little while ago, uh, these are all uh, marginalized groups, all of them. And they build, they owe their, really, they owe their philosophy to Karl Marx. Now, what are some of the major, well, let me see, I think I missed that. What are some of the major tenets of it? I'm gonna give you three. The major, so you can just kind of process it. The major beliefs of liberation theology can be boiled down to three things. First of all, the Bible should be interpreted through the lens of the poor. There are over 200 passages in the Bible that relate to the poor, spiritually, poverty, and otherwise. They want to take all those passages and say, look, here's how we should be interpreting the Bible in light of these scriptures. That's one belief. The second is uh, we should defer saving souls uh, and focus on poverty relief. They believe that poverty, saving souls is still on the list, but it shouldn't be the priority that and poverty should be eliminated now. And get involved in social programs and social action. And third, just like Gustav, that quote that I put up there, they believe that Marxist social analysis best helped them to explain the present circumstances that they were in. And they started taking biblical exegesis, they started mixing biblical exegesis with Marxist social theory. They just took the Bible and they started mixing it with the world. Those are the three main beliefs that they hold. Just a word about the relationship to Marxism. From the perspective of the priest grassroots people, uh, they, they say that it would be nearly impossible to avoid meeting a Marxist group uh, in Central America at that time. Marxists were everywhere. However, they would argue that the connections between Marxism and liberation theology are not as clear cut as critics may argue. They say liberation theology does not embrace Marxism totally. They kind of split hairs. They, they say it doesn't embrace Marxism totally as Marx advocated that it should be. Marx said you have to either take the whole hog, you can't leave with part of it. You got to take all of Marxism, but they didn't. They claimed that they didn't. They, they said it draws on certain aspects of Marxist theory while rejecting others. They say the sole connection, just one connection between Marxism and liberation theology is a focus on empowering the poor and class struggle. The Vatican strongly felt that the connection between Marxism and the Catholic Church was not tenable. In addition to these things, they were charmed by what seemed to be successful Marxist revolutions at the time. So what was going on when they first started this back in the 50s and 60s, see, they used Cuba as kind of an example. When Fidel Castro kind of overthrew and got in control, 
the people in Latin America looked up to Fidel and they said, well, hey, you know, if Fidel can do that, we should do it down here. So Fidel kind of helped them believe in Marxism because Fidel was a Marxist. So they say it is not held to the same level as the gospel. They started kind of when the Catholic Church started really beating on them about, well, you know, you are really destroying the validity of the scriptures as if they went by the scripture. But then they said, no, we, we, we don't hold uh, the uh, Marxism at the same level as we hold the gospel. Well, they said the materialism and the atheism in Marxism, you know, Marx was an atheist. They said, we don't, we don't buy that part of it. The, uh, the atheism and the, uh, and the materialism. Marxism does not even constitute a temptation for them. That's a quote. Marx doesn't even constitute a temptation for them. Well, my response to that is Proverbs 6, verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You can't just take part of something and say, okay, we're just, we're just looking at the, we agree with Marx on the poor deal. We agree with him, but we don't go along with the other stuff. Well, what Bible passages do we have that promote it? Well, there are over 200 passages in the New Testament, I mean, in the Bible, that relate to the poor. These passages support and even mandate God's people to take care of the poor. I want to go over some of these. These are some of the books that they use in their writings. Uh, of course, they use the Exodus uh, narrative for its liberation theme. It has a Exodus, you know, the Jews being liberated from the Egyptians, so they like that book. The, the prophets, um, Jeremiah, Micah, uh, Zechariah, uh, several of the prophets uh, defend God and the rights of the poor. There's a lot of Old Testament passages that you could just concordance them. I won't reference a lot of them here. We'll look at a few of them. But there's, a, there's scores of, of passages that defend the rights of the poor. And the Gospels, they take Jesus' care and concern for the poor. Uh, they especially like that, that prophecy, uh, Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, where Jesus got up and he started saying, you know, this scripture is fulfilled in your ear. And he starts quoting Isaiah. They have some, and we'll look at that one in particular, but they really like that prophecy because it shows that in their mind, it shows that uh, the poor really were special uh, for God because Jesus spoke directly about them in that prophecy. Of course, you got wisdom literature. There are many references to the poor uh, there. Many references to the poor uh, in, in the wisdom literature. And the Maccabees, uh, they... They like that book. I think the Catholics have that book in their Bible, I believe. But they like, they like this Maccabee situation. You know, when the Jewish uprising, those few Jewish people came and they took over Judea. I think it, that, that control, I think they, they, they kept in control for a long time. But these are the books that they kind of like. If you read some of their stuff, they're going to make reference to some of these books. Now, let's look at some key passages. Uh, I picked a, a few I don't know if I have time to go over all of them. I think I will. But I want to show you how they look at these passages. Now, of course, you're going to say, well, I don't see that, that in that passage. And you probably won't in a lot of things. But they, they overlay that with that thinking of Marxism, oppressor, oppressed. Uh, Micah 6 and 8. 
Okay, Michael 6 and 8. He's show, we know this passage is a very uh, popular passage. He's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy. They, this justice here, they believe that, that Michael's talking about doing just to the poor, which in the context, that verse kind of alludes to that earlier, I believe. So they say, but to do justly, that, that we need to be just with poor people. We need to make sure we're fair and just with them, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. This is the two passages that they really like because it's the prophecy that Isaiah dated back in Isaiah 61 and Jesus fulfilled it in Luke 4. Now, uh, we know this passage, Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has wanted me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives. They like that. I didn't highlight it, but they like this liberty to the captives. Of course, the poor being captive to, to poverty and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, Jesus didn't exactly just quote this verbatim when he uh, uh, fulfilled it, but they like this gospel to the poor. Uh, preach the gospel to the poor. They, again, they're using that as, that should be the, yeah. my, uh, my, the prime objective. In Psalms 82, here's another one they like. Uh, how long will you judge unjustly? That's that justice theme again. And show partiality to the wicked. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They really like that passage. Uh, uh, Proverbs 14, 31, he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. Uh, some translations say insult your maker. So when you oppress the poor, you know, you're getting on God's bad side. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, for the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore, I command thee, saying, thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to the poor and to the needy in the land. And then Luke 6, 20, uh, he just said, I lifted up his eyes on, uh, on his disciples and said, blessed be ye of the poor. They like this one as opposed to the one over Matthew 5, because it specifically says, blessed be ye the poor, not poor in spirit. So they kind of grabbed that verse. Uh, okay. Okay, now uh, this is the last passage. Now this is one that, that, that uh, they also hold in high esteem. I want to read the whole passage. Uh, I think I have time. No, I don't. Uh, anyway, uh, they like this passage. You, you can read it later. That because of this phrase here. Then shall the king say unto them, this right here, come even the father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the founders of the world. He's talking about the kingdom. You drop down here. All these things that are mentioned, you know, you, you didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't give me clothes. Da, 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 da. They love that because they're tying. They believe this ties. If you don't do this, then you're not going to make it to the kingdom. So they really like this, this passage here. You have done it unto me. Or that last part. If you've done it to least you've done it to me. Okay, I'm going to have to run right to the last deal here. I had this time, and it didn't, didn't work out. Okay, uh, I'm going to go through, uh, this is probably the real question that um, Austin wanted me to get to. He said, is there any value in it, or should Christians reject it? I'm going to give you six, seven reasons why, um, 
well, it's kind of obvious, really. Uh, when one takes an objective look at liberation theology, there are some obvious errors that have been well documented. Uh, and they naturally surface, as I've brought some out tonight, just in talking. But let me give you uh, a couple of just hard things that, that why we have to reject this. This is not something that we can cozy up to. It's not something that we can kind of, you know, get close to. It's totally 100% false for lots of reasons. And I won't have time to go to all these reasons. But the first one is Marxist. Uh, one cannot overlook the fact that, that this stuff is based on Marxism. And I use this passage here because what has happened, uh, I believe this passage speaks to uh, false apostles transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. I mean, that, that there's this, this idea or this power that Satan has to really uh, look like the truth. It may look like the truth. It may feel like it should be the truth. All of us want to help people. Uh, so there's an appeal to it at an emotional level that a lot of us have. But the way they go about it, the way they execute it, is totally, totally unscriptural. And Marxists, if you know anything about Karl Marx, Karl Marx was an atheist. He didn't have a job. He, he, if you read his biography, you would just be appalled at this guy. He, he was immoral. He, 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 there's a whole lot of things about this guy. But he was an atheist, and here's what he said. He said, uh, there, I think I have it written here, the quote. He said, yeah, the first requisite for the happiness of the people is the abolishment of religion. That's what he said. And he also said, uh, another famous statement, he said, religion is the opium of the people. So this guy, so these people lined up behind a guy who really had no respect for God, nothing, but they lined, these Catholic folks lined up behind him and really made him into a God just about. So for that Marxist, uh, beginning, we couldn't support that because of that. Secondly, the kingdom of God. They don't focus on the kingdom. They don't focus on the kingdom of God. They focus on the kingdom of the world. They're looking at the world. They're not looking at the afterlife. They're not looking at salvation. They don't, uh, they don't look at the plan of salvation. Nothing like that. They want you to get behind them to be a social activist. That's the second thing. And, and thirdly, they advocate violence, too. Because they supported, in fact, the United States supported some of those groups down there in Nicaragua uh, that the Methodist people were supporting. The United States put money and troops kind of secretly to kind of help those people down there to overthrow the government. And they actually advocate violence only if it's necessary. And most of those coups that they had down there at that time, Hundreds of people were killed, thousands were killed in these coups. So they don't have a kingdom concept at all. Uh, the kingdom is secondary. All right, I'm over. Uh, just one closing deal. Oh, let's see. They don't emphasize evangelism. Just give me one. Oh, yeah, group sin. They, they look at sin as group, group sin. The oppressor is... You're all sin. All white people are oppressors. So all of y'all are sinners. There's no individual, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.10, there's none of that, none of that. That's what critical race theory is saying right now and teaching in your classrooms right now. My granddaughter brought something home. I can tell you about it in the Q&A, but this is a country school in Bolger City, Louisiana, that you wouldn't even think would be into all this stuff, but it was just, it's everywhere. And I know it's here in Columbia. You got a major university here? I know it's here because these universities, they promote this stuff. Last point, it's political. They want you to be an activist. 
Let me read the last statement, then I'll stop. Okay, conclusion. The result of what this theology has done to society is to push humanity further and further from the Bible. That's what it's done. Now, humanity didn't need any help to get away from the Bible because they're getting away from the Bible anyway, but this thing has pushed people further and further away from the Bible. Now, as the word of God, when it spawned all these other ideologies, when a group feels oppressed, they then build this theology around it and read the Bible through their own particular lens. All these groups have fashioned theologies that are more and more cynical and disbelieving of the Bible. For example, feminist theory accuses the Bible of being chauvinistic. God is chauvinistic. God is the oppressor. Queer theory reads the Bible through a lens that affirms LGBTQ sexuality. That's how they read it, through that lens. Often going so far to interpret biblical figures, including Jesus, including Jesus himself, as being homosexual. The further we trace the logic of liberation theology, theology itself becomes liberated from itself. And the Bible becomes less and less important. And that's what's happening in society right now. That's it.